It is great to be back here with you guys again today. We are entering into the fourth chapter, the fourth and final chapter of the book of Philippians. It's hard to believe what was started almost four months ago is going to find its end early next month. Some of you are thinking, finally, next month. Now that's a Sunday that I'm going to be there for, to see the end of this series. But you see, Philippians is a great book for us because we get to see what it is to find unity not in our common ideas, but in our common identification with the person of Jesus. See, one of the things that's going on in our country right now, which really just makes me very happy to be an American, is that every four years, we get to choose the person that will lead us for the next four years. And we don't see different warring factions of military rise up and take power through military might, but we see a peaceful process and exchange of power. Now, part of leading up to that is spending millions and millions of dollars trying to get our vote, right? Trying to to get their message out there and get our vote. And this past week, we got to see uh, the debate. We got to see a presidential debate between the two candidates. We got to see our president and and then this other guy, Mitt Romney. And they're both competing with their ideologies, competing with their, their arguments to try and get our vote. And so they're trying to, to compete to get our vote. As we watch this, there are, generally speaking, two groups of people. See, there are those of us who are already completely bought into one candidate. I mean, barring you know, any crazy exposition of or exposing of any type of moral failure, we're going to vote for this guy. So as we watch the debate, we're not thinking, our minds aren't engaged thinking, oh, who am I going to, I just don't know who I'm going to vote for. I've, uh, you know, I didn't vote for Obama four years ago, but maybe I'll vote for him today. And so our minds are already locked into one candidate. So we watch the debate instead, hoping that our candidate will expose some type of deficiency in the other guy. So every time our candidate makes a good point, we're like, yes, did you hear that? And we're tweeting out, be like, awesome point, debate, hashtag debate 2012. And when the other guy makes a point, We're like, oh man, I hope my candidate's got a great comeback for that. Hashtag hopeful thinking, 2012. But we're really not listening a whole lot to try and be convinced because we've already made up our minds who we're going to vote for. You see, but there's a completely separate group out there that as they watch this debate, they're not cheering on one candidate or the other. What they're doing is they're going down through and they're looking for who's going to be the type of person they want to lead them. You see, now, this group of people aren't even thinking, how does this candidate line up morally? Are they pro-life? Where do they stand on the issue of marriage? Are they fiscally responsible? Are they pro-military? They aren't really concerned with this. You see, instead, this person is watching the debate, and they're thinking, what is this guy going to do for me? What is this guy going to give me? You see, because my desire is to cast a vote for the person that is going to give me the most, meet the most, meet more of my needs. You see, as Paul writes to the church in Philippi some almost 2,000 years ago, he's writing to a group of people that existed as Roman citizens living in Philippi. They had the status as as Roman citizens, and their needs and their wants and their, their safety was delivered from a city they didn't live in. It was meant It was met by the power and might of Rome. You see, as Paul writes this to the Philippians, he answers a question 
that, man, we so desperately need to have answered for us today. And that is, what do we do in light of a hostile world in which we live? You see, you and I, and as much as we identify with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, live as aliens in a foreign land. We live as aliens in a foreign land, and Paul gives us an insight into how we should then live and be encouraged in light of our hostile environment in which we live. Let me read for us, starting in verse 20 of chapter 3, and we'll read through verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul writes and he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By what power, or how's he going to do it? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm thus in the Lord. So Paul gives us some, some ways that we are to stand firm, or some circumstances in which we are to be found standing firm, resolute, not shifting, not being so terrified and scared that we run away, but we, that we might hold our ground in the midst of this. You see, but why is Paul using this term citizenship? Man, for the Philippians, living in Philippi, living outside of Rome, Philippi wasn't some backwater trading town. Philippi wasn't some town that they were embarrassed to be from. Man, this is Philippi. We're Roman citizens here in Philippi. And so when he draws on this idea of citizenship, they're very much thinking, we are citizens of Rome. Just as you and I sit here today and we think that our citizenship lies with our country, or maybe some of you are so far bought into being Texas, you're like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know about that, but I am a Texas citizen. As Paul writes these people, they're not identifying the strength of their city, but they're identifying the strength and might of Rome. So he's offering something that's completely contrary to their mode of thought. Paul writes and he says, your citizenship is in heaven. You see, just as they were Roman citizens not living in Rome, so too their citizenship was in heaven. Now this is an odd bit of thought, right? Do any of you live in, in heaven? Man, I'm glad nobody raised a hand. That would have gotten really awkward really fast. You see, but our citizenship is presently in heaven. Do you think about it that way? Or do you think to yourself, well, you know, when I, when I die, of course, because I've accepted Jesus Christ, because I've asked him to come and be my, my Lord and Savior, of course, then I'll, I'll become a citizen of heaven. You see, Paul addresses that mindset, and he says, no, no. Right now, as you live, right now, as you exist in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of all the stuff going on around you, the present reality for you right now is that your citizenship is in heaven. Man, this should cause them to be able to stand firm. This should cause them to have to see their position be buttressed, secured, made steadfast, so that they might remain firm, steadfast, and resolute. See, when Valerie and I lived in Prague, we, we remained as citizens of the U.S. And there, there came a time that we had to travel to the U.S. Embassy. 
And when you start thinking about the U.S. Embassy in a foreign country, not, not here, but when you start thinking about it in a foreign country, if you're anything like me, I start thinking of like Hershey bars, you know, s'mores. Somebody's got a fire crackling in the background. Hey, we're making some s'mores. You want to come over? Oh, man, I love some s'mores. You know, A&W root beer, Dr. Pepper. Things that make America great. <laughs> and so we start thinking that we're going to see these types of things because those are the things that remind us of home. You see, but as we went into the embassy and we cleared all the different pat-down security checks, and we made it through the scanners, and they scanned all of our belongings, it was a great shock to find that most of the people working in our embassy weren't even Americans. So you walk through, and you expect to hear this you know, warm and rich Georgia accent, and then you hear somebody say something to you in Czech, and you're like, what? Oh, we're in the American embassy. What are you doing here? And they're like, oh, I work here. I'm like, well, got to be honest, that's a total disappointment to me. That's a total disappointment to me. You see, but the reality of our heavenly citizenship isn't something to where somebody could work part-time. We're not going to find people there that don't identify their citizenship in heaven. You see, there's a very big difference between our, our embassies all over the world and heaven. Because our citizenship isn't something that could be bought. It isn't something that could be traded for. You see, Roman citizenship could be acquired. You could give enough money to the state and get your citizenship. Somebody could adopt you. Even as an adult, you could be adopted and become a member of this elite group. You could become a citizen of Rome. It's thought that Paul, whose family was Jewish, they worked it out where Paul was adopted so that he might become a Roman citizen. You see, but for us to become citizens of heaven, it's not about me buying my way in. It's not about me knowing somebody and them adopting me in. It's not even about going through some immigration naturalization process where I learn enough facts about it, I sign enough documents, and I have a clean criminal background, and I get in. You see, all of us have just a really nasty rap sheet and a really nasty uh, background check as far as how it goes for the requirements of getting into heaven. But Jesus... He brings us in as he, becomes our as he becomes our Savior and Lord. And we're transferred from this outpost, from this place where our citizenship is tied in a country that can't seem to decide which way she wants to go. And our citizenship and our loyalty and our allegiance moves from here to heaven. We also see that they're supposed to stand firm because of what they're waiting for, because of what they're waiting to see. Our citizenship is in heaven, in the second half, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus came the first time, if you've read through the Gospels very much? What was his birth like? Was he born in a palace? Did he have this just awesome coming where, where members of aristocracy and royalty showed up you know, to walk by and kiss the holy diaper of the one who had become king of all? Not in my Bible. 
What about when he got a little older and people started recognizing all the wisdom and everything he had? Did he attract mass followings of people? Did people line up to walk by and kiss his ring? See, Jesus came completely unassuming. As we studied earlier in Philippians 2, 5-11, we see this idea of Jesus. Man, he came as a servant. The king of all the universe humbled himself and came as a lowly servant so that he might serve, so that he might lead us to the cross. But here we read that we're not awaiting this Jesus to come back in an unassuming way. We're waiting on this Jesus to come back who's a powerful Savior. He's a powerful Savior. Again, Paul is attacking, he has a direct onslaught against this Roman identity of where their salvation, where their protection lied. See, some of the titles that Caesar uh, used of himself were Savior and Lord. So he's already told them, hey, look, don't get so excited about your Roman citizenship because your citizenship is in heaven. And you could almost hear the gears in their head start turning like, okay, yeah, I get that because it's, it's this idea of already, not yet. So I've already attained my heavenly citizenship, but I don't reside there. And then he goes to the next step and he says, and from heaven, we await our Savior. You see, they were so caught up with this understanding of of waiting on Rome to deliver them, of waiting on Rome to keep them safe, of waiting on Rome to meet their needs, that when Paul changes it, he changes the conversation for them, and he says that Jesus is your Savior. Not some weak, impotent man who seeks to advance his own agenda, who seeks to be known and worshipped by his people, but the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ is whom they wait on. And he lives in heaven. And he's coming again. And this is the great news he offers them. That Jesus is coming again. Man. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get the significance of that? Man, he's our Lord. As his people, as his subjects... Our will, our desire should be to do his bidding. And then as the Christ, as the King, as the anointed one, as the Messiah, he alone can offer salvation. And it's this Jesus whom we wait on. You see, but today we live in a society that is, again, so accustomed to waiting on our Rome to meet our needs. We just call it Washington. We wait on Washington to meet the needs that we have, to keep us safe, to provide us health care, to provide us all the things that we so badly think that we need. And the temptation is to not worry about our heavenly citizenship, because that's satisfied, right? That's, that's kept. But instead, we become so myopic, we start to focus solely upon our earthly citizenship. We put such a high value and a high premium on that. But guys, the reality is that November's going to come and go. We're going to pick another leader for the next four years. And whether our president is reelected or Mitt Romney or some other write-in wins, 
our citizenship remains in heaven. You see, it's not some man that we're going to elect that's going to be able to change our economy or, or change the direction of this country, but it is a mighty God and His Son Jesus in whose hand remains the, stands the fate of all kingdoms and principalities. It's because of that we can stand firm. It's because we have this Savior who's not directed by, not trying to get different parties to work together, but it's because we have this Savior who saves us from sin. The one thing that no government, no group of people getting together with good intentions could ever accomplish is the redemption of of humanity. And Jesus has done it, and he is coming again. But the question then becomes, is, what's he going to do when he gets here? I understand he's coming back. You know, we, we hear that, we look for that, but what is he going to do when he gets here? Verse 21 answers that for us. Paul writes in verse 21 that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, we look at our bodies, especially uh, me today, we look at our bodies in sickness and infirmity and fatigue. My mother-in-law wrote me this week and said, what do you want for Christmas? I texted her back, I said, six-pack abs and an 18-year-old knee. And she can't get me that. But it's this idea that our bodies are slowly deteriorating. Our bodies are, are slowly decaying. The moment we are born, we begin to die. Man, that's uplifting, isn't it? You see, but Jesus is going to come again. And he's going to take this mortal shell. He's going to take this body that's so weak and that's so given to illness. He's going to take all the imperfections that are in me that are all the way down to my DNA. Man, he's going to take that and he's going to transform that. He's going to take that and he's going to change everything about it so that all that my inadequacies become perfections, so that all my weaknesses become strengths, and so that he is glorified. You see, because the full weight of the glory of God as we read in the Exodus, when Moses asked God, he said, God, can I see your glory? And God's words were, you can't stand it. It would wipe you out. It would completely destroy you to see my glory. See, our bodies are going to be transformed, not so that we can be better people, not so that we can leap tall buildings in a single bound, but our bodies are going to be transformed so that we can withstand being in the presence of God. Our bodies are going to be transformed so that we can endure being in the presence of the glory of God. Man, that's great news. That Jesus is going to come again. And he's going to take our body that slowly, just as he came and exchanged the the glory of God for a lowly body coming in the form of a servant. He's going to take this body and he's going to transform it. And then we will be able to, to bear the weight of God's glory. You see, but he's not going to do it by, by coming back and, and setting up in Washington. And appointing somebody as the, the, the undersecretary for transformation. 
You see, he's not going to do it by going to the people on Biggest Loser and saying, all right, guys, this is what we want. We want healthy people. We want vibrant people. I need everybody to lose approximately 50% of their body weight. You've got six weeks to do it. We're going to televise the whole thing. It's going to be a great encouragement. At the end, people are going to get to vote. That's just stupid. You see, he's not going to do it through CrossFit or Shakeology. He's not going to do it through making this thing better because he's got to tear this thing all the way down. But the second half of 21 tells us exactly how he's going to do it. He's going to use the same power, the same energy, the same ability that he uses even to subject all things to himself. See, Paul here is making an allusion to Psalm 8-6, where the psalmist writes, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You see what Adam did in imperfection? When Adam went out and God created all of creation, he told him to go forth, subdue, bring it under your dominion, and then go forth, multiply, right? And so it's these twin ideas of dominion and dynasty. And he put, it, he put that under Adam, he put that under us. But what Adam was weak to do, what you and I are weak to do, Christ is going to do in perfection. He's going to do in absolute perfection, subjecting all things under his feet. I mean, these are little things. Disease, under his footstool. Infirmity, it's under there. War, yeah. Death, little things like that. Just a little thing like death is absolutely under his control and will be put under him. You see, all these things will be put under him and that is another reason we can stand firm. We stand firm and wait not because there's a hope and a chance that he's returning and a hope and a chance that our bodies will be transformed. But we stand firm on the promise that he's coming again. We stand firm on the promise that he's going to take this mortal shell and he's going to change it from being lowly, from being humble, and it's going to become like his glorious body, like his resurrected body. And then as we come into verse 1, we're reminded that this isn't a letter of rebuke, that this is a word of encouragement and a word of friendship. Paul writes, he says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Let me ask you this. If I write my wife a letter, and I use this type of language, I think she's going to make steak for dinner. Many of you don't think that. But it's probably true. You see the language he uses in here. You guys are the ones I love. You guys are the ones I long for. And your present reality, he's not talking about some eternal reward, but the present reality is that you guys are my crown and my jewel. Paul had a personal hand in planting the church here in Philippi. He has a personal investment and stake in seeing, in seeing them succeed. And when he looks at them, he sees them as beautiful because as he wrote in Philippians 2.5, they have in them the mind of Christ. See, the idea that standing firm 
is repetitive. Just as proven character isn't overcoming adversity one time, standing firm is standing firm repetitively in the midst of suffering and persecution. You'll remember that the passage immediately prior to this painted a people that used to spend time with them. Paul writes and he says, I write you now with tears, thinking about those who now pursue their own path. They're pursuing complete hedonism. They're pursuing their own ends, all the desires of the flesh. And so now he's writing and he's seeking to support their position again. And he says, man, you guys are, I love you. I long for you. You're my jewel and my crown. But he also makes a tie-in here. You'll remember when we went through chapter 1 of Philippians in the 27th verse, Paul wrote, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Another way of rendering that is using that same word, be worthy citizens of the gospel. And so Paul here has given us a mark in the text from 127 and coming back to it here in 4.1. It's this idea of what it is to be a worthy citizen. You see, to be a worthy citizen, they must stand firm. But see, they're not writing and he's not telling them, uh, you know, as individuals you need to individually stand firm. But he addresses them corporately and he says, as a group of people, a body of believers, the family of God, stand firm. So the idea then is standing firm together. Being united in opposition from either those Judaizers who sought to add requirements on top of salvation that Paul referred to as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. And he said, man, they've got no part in the kingdom. But also standing firm against those people that said, we can do whatever we want and it's so much better. You should come to our side and you should buy into our way of thinking. See, they should stand firm together, united against opposition. And they should stand firm as those with their citizenship in heaven, awaiting the coming of their Savior. Because guys, I tell you, that it really doesn't matter who wins the election, as much as it pertains to this. You see, we want to see somebody win that's going to be responsible. We want to see somebody win that's going to have the same values that we do. We want to see somebody win who's going to have the fear of God. But that's not where our hope lies. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Man will turn against man. The Roman Empire, who many in its day thought it too big to fall, too mighty to fail, too rich to ever run out of money, it's just a bygone. You read in the papers where Venice is, is looking into the possibility of splitting off from Italy. The mightiest, na- the mightiest nation and empire the world has ever seen. And they're no longer here. Greece, Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great, Conquered mass portions of the world. Greece is in a complete mess. See, if we put our hope on any man or any government, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to lose our sure sure footing and we're going to have a hard time standing. 
but when we stand firm on the promise that God loves us, and that because he loves us, he has saved us from our sins, and if you believe that, and we stand firm looking towards the heavens with our eyes lifted upward, pressing on with the reality that our citizenship isn't in this country. We live here, but this is not where our allegiance lies. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a powerful Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. There's great news that he's going to transform this lowly shell to be like his glorious body. And that this glorious body will, dr- will dwell in the presence of the king and will be able to bear the full weight of his glory. Let me pray for us.